Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful to you for the word that lies before us today, and I pray that you would come and use it powerfully. Lord, there are some people in this room that really need to hear this message, and there are others who will hear it online that really need to hear this message. Father, you know that each of us needs to feed on the Word of God, but there are some particular, surely, that you have in mind today that you mean to do a special work and a powerful work, maybe a life-shaping work. And so I pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would work through the preaching of your Word. I pray that you would feel free to stir inside of our hearts and work in us. Father, even for myself, even as I preach, I pray that you would open my eyes and open my heart to things that I have yet to see. I pray, Father, that by your word you would come and like a good shepherd lead your people. And I thank you, Father, by faith for what you will do. For surely, surely you uh, have this in your heart. Long before we ever thought to pray it, you have it in your heart to lead your people by your word. And so I thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus was asked by some Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to reveal whether or not he was and is the Christ, he told them that he had in fact already revealed himself through his words, through his speech, and repeatedly so, and also by his works. He emphasized both of these things. I have shown you who I am by what I've said, and I've also demonstrated who I am by what I do. Both of those things are very important, beloved. Jesus then confronted these leaders with the hardness of their own hearts, and he compared them to others who actually did believe in him, many times with much less information than they had. And he concluded his thoughts with that famous statement in chapter 10, verse 30, where he said, I and the Father are one. That statement outraged the Jews because they understood it clearly as a claim to divinity. And so they picked up stones to kill Jesus, but he boldly spoke up, and he challenged them to give a reason, a justifiable reason for this deadly action. They replied that they were intending to kill him because he had committed blasphemy. He, as just a mere man, had claimed to be God. But in response to that, Jesus quoted from Psalm 82, verse six, and he, in my view, pretty clearly implied that he is the fulfillment of that psalm. He then boldly reiterated his major claim in verses 37 and 38, if you look there with me. Albeit in different words, Jesus said again, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's just another way of saying I and the Father are one. This outraged the Jewish leaders, beloved, and so they again sought to arrest him, John says, which surely means they planned to try him and put him to death. But by the grace of God the Father, Jesus escaped from their grasp. He left the promised land proper out toward the east 
and he went back to the place where it all began. He went back to the place where John had been baptizing at first and where he himself was baptized. He went back to the place where the Holy Spirit came upon him and settled upon him and remained upon him. And John tells us that Jesus stayed in that place for a little while. And once he was settled, it's an amazing thing to see what happened because many people flocked to him there. And although they only had a little bit of information, they knew things that John had said about this man They knew a little bit about what Jesus had done. They humbled themselves before Jesus. They bowed their lives before him. And John says to us that many people believed in Jesus there in that place. Jesus, in some sense, had gone outside the fold, if you will. And his own heard his voice and they drew to him. They listened to him. They bowed before him. They committed themselves to following him. This brings us to the events of John chapter 11, which took place about three months after the events of John chapter 10. In fact, the things that Jesus did in chapter 11 caused so many people to believe in him that the authorities finally decided that they had to stop Jesus right then, and in some sense, they did succeed. They ended up putting him to death. In the end, they would not succeed. But what I I want us to see here this morning as we just think about how the flow of John is going We need to see chapters 11 and 12 as one unit because the story of 11 sets up everything that's gonna happen in 12 and these two chapters as a unit are leading us closer and closer and closer to the cross. In a sense, when Jesus was born, the moment he was born, he was headed to the cross. But now, with John chapter 11, we see a deliberate march toward his time of suffering, toward his time of death, toward his time of resurrection. And so with that, the plan is to devote four Sundays to chapter 11. We'll devote five Sundays to chapter 12, and all through it, again, we'll be brought nearer and nearer and nearer to the cross. Today, I just want to look at the setup of the story in chapter 11, so we'll just cover verses 1 through 16, but there are some really important things that we need to see in this part of the story that will help us understand the rest in the coming weeks. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, John begins... Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. With regard to geography, you'll see at the, at the end of chapter 10, John doesn't actually name the place that Jesus went to, but if you've been studying carefully, if you've been paying close attention, you'd have to be paying really close attention because John actually named that place back in chapter one, verse 28. When Jesus went out to be baptized, he told us that that place was called Bethany. But I just wanna be clear for those of you who might notice this, that we have two Bethanies in play here. The Bethany where Jesus was is about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. It might have been a little bit farther than that, but it was at least 50 miles away from Jerusalem. The Bethany where Lazarus and Martha and Mary were was only two miles away from Jerusalem. It was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So here's Jerusalem. You gotta go up and over the Mount of Olives. On the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, there was this little village called Bethany, and that's where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus resided resided, whatever you would say. I don't think resode is a word, but I just made it a word. With regard to this family, Lazarus and his sisters, it's actually the first that we've heard about them. It's the first, in fact, that we've heard about their town, Bethany. And so to help us understand who he's talking about, John identifies this family as, hey, this is the family where, with, with the woman named Mary, Mary's the one who anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped, wiped his feet off with her hair. That's an interesting way for him to identify her because he hasn't told that story yet. 
He doesn't tell the story until chapter 12. And so you kind of scratch your head a little bit and say, well, John, wouldn't you want to tell us the story before you refer to the story? But it turns out that in the early church, this story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet was widely told as a normal part of sharing the gospel. A lot of people knew this story, even unbelievers. A lot of people knew this story. And so probably John just assumed that his readers would know what he was talking about. And also, as Don Carson points out in his commentary on John, this is at one place where it shows that John expected people to read his gospel more than one time. He expected you to be familiar with the story as you read the story. And I think that's instructive for us. We should read all of Scripture repeatedly and not just once because the more you understand, the, I think the more you plumb into the depths of understanding. Whatever John's expectations of his readers, the more important point is that he has now brought to our attention this family, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and he's let us know two things about them. First of all, he lets us know where they lived, two miles east of Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, and second, he has let us know that Lazarus has fallen sick. Evidently, Lazarus' illness was pretty serious. We don't know the details of it, but it was obviously serious because his sisters sent people to Jesus just to say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's verse three. Now, it would have taken at least one day to get from where they were to where Jesus was, and it would have been a crazy, crazy day. Imagine hiking 50 miles in one day. Even if you had a donkey or some kind of animal with you, it would have been a very, very long journey. Most people would have taken this journey in two days. So it was at least a full, long journey hard one-day journey, but it probably was more like a two-day journey to get to Jesus. And I point this out just to show how desperate they were. He was sick enough that they had no hope in any, any possibility that they could see in their lives for the healing of their brother. They've exhausted all their options. They have no other hope, and all they can think is, we gotta get word to Jesus. Somehow we gotta get Jesus in the presence of Lazarus or get Lazarus in the presence of Jesus, but we got to get to Jesus. You gotta see how desperate they felt, beloved. This is really important to the story. And then notice that when they told Jesus the news, they specifically said, the one whom you love, he is ill. They're pointing out Jesus' affections for Lazarus because I think they were hoping that Jesus would be moved, deeply moved by the news and that he would do something quickly. And probably they mainly just expected him to come to their town, but I'm sure that they knew the story about Jesus healing the the boy from a distance. The boy was in Capernaum. Jesus was over in Cana area, and he healed somebody from a distance. So maybe they even hoped that Jesus would just say the word and heal Lazarus from wherever he was. But whatever their expectations, I think the main thing we need to know is how desperate they were and how hopeful they were that Jesus could solve this problem. Jesus was the answer to the circumstances that they were facing. But for his part, when Jesus heard this report, he said to the messengers and to the disciples in verse four, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, when you just read this at full speed and really let yourself sink into the story and imagine what it would have been like to be there, I for one am amazed by how quickly Jesus saw the purposes and the end point of this story as soon as he heard the problem. I mean, as soon as he hears the problem, he sees the whole thing. He sees the beginning, the middle, and the end so that he confidently says, this is not fundamentally about death, this is fundamentally about the glory of God. 
And it, it, it might be tempting to think that the reason Jesus had such exhaustive knowledge about this story was because he's God and he knows everything. But I think to take that point of view is to diminish his humanity. When Jesus walked upon this earth, he was fully man, which means that he was limited in his scope of knowledge. And so I think it's better to think that Jesus knew what he knew about this circumstance because of the depth, the regularity, the profundity of his communion with his Father. As Jesus was walking with God the Father, God the Father let Jesus know what he needed to know when he needed to know it possible that in a time of prayer, God the Father prepared Jesus for this before the fact. It's possible that Jesus knew these people were coming just through prayer. I've shared with you before, and I'm not going to get specific about this, but many things have happened in the life of this church where God has shown me before the fact that certain things were going to happen so that I would be prepared as a leader and I would not panic that I would have faith in him and hope in him and trust in him and that I would press on. Sometimes the Lord has shown me visions in prayer. Other times I've woken up to dreams and God's just shown me things that helped me, that prepared me to shepherd this church. And I don't mean to be mystical. I'm not saying I have some kind of special line with God. I'm just saying that since God knows everything, he's able to lead his leaders and prepare him to lead the sheep. How much more would Jesus have a direct pipeline to this kind of wisdom from his father since he had a perfect, unbroken communion with him? Never for a second was Jesus distracted from the beauty of his Father. Never for a second did he allow his heart to be gripped with things that did not concern his Father. So in my view, Jesus knew what he knew about the beginning, middle, and end of this thing through his prayer life, through his communion with his Father. Maybe the Lord prepared him before the fact. Maybe when he heard the news, the Lord showed him in a flash. Who knows? Who knows? But either way, Jesus knew that Lazarus' illness was not ultimately about death. It was about the glory of God. Now, most of us know the rest of this story, and therefore we know that Lazarus is actually going to die. His physical death is, is, is coming. But we also know that his physical death is just one stage in a larger journey toward resurrection life. The death of Lazarus is not going to be the final chapter in his life, which is why Jesus had full confidence to say with passion, this illness is not ultimately about death. But put yourself in the shoes of those who were there that morning or that afternoon, that evening, whenever it was. Imagine what it would have been like to first hear Jesus speak these words. What would you think if you heard about Lazarus' illness and then you heard Jesus say, don't worry, this isn't about death? I would think that Jesus is saying he's, he's gonna be okay. The family is alarmed, the, serious, the situation is serious, but it's not severe, everything's gonna be okay. And I think I would have heard his final words to, to mean that somehow or other, Jesus is gonna get glory out of this. I don't know what that means, but I've been walking with him for three years now, I've seen him do plenty of things, and I just trust, he, he, somehow he's gonna get glory. But I would have heard Jesus is saying, Lazarus is gonna be fine, no need to worry. That's not what he was saying, but I think that's how they heard what he was saying. But when I look at what Jesus said and did in this entire story, I think he is just amazingly wise. He's just amazingly in control of everything that's happening and he masterfully raises the issue of his glory coming through suffering. That's what he's doing right here. He's getting the disciples to think about his glory in the face of suffering. It's really important. It is not accidental. 
He has intentions for everybody involved in this story, including his disciples. And right now, he has raised the issue. Think about my glory through suffering. By the way, I do want to point out real quick that when Jesus said that this illness was for the glory of God so that he might be glorified, he was again subtly claiming to be God. We've talked about this many times over the last weeks. Every time I see it in John, I'm just gonna keep pointing it out to you so that you can mark your Bibles if you want to. There are people out in the world that say Jesus never claimed to be God. Here's a place where you can go and say, yes, he did. He equated his glory with God's glory. What would it sound like to you if I said, you know, maybe someone's sick in our church and I said, don't worry about it. This is for the glory of God, that God might glorify me through this. You would probably reprimand me, and if I didn't repent, you would probably fire me, and you'd be doing the right thing. Because I'm not God. I have no business equating my glory with God's glory. Jesus said, this is for God's glory so that I can be glorified. It's, it's a subtle to us way of claiming to be God, but I promise you that if the leaders of the Jews had been there and heard him say that, they would have picked up stones again to stone him. They would have picked up stones again to take his life because he was clearly saying that he is God, subtly but clearly. In verse five, you'll see John notes again just how much Jesus loved this family. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he said it in verse three, he repeats it in verse five. And in addition to the repetition of this idea that Jesus loved them, in the Greek language, the word love is put first in the sentence. The way Greek is constructed, you can actually move words around a lot more than you can in English, and sometimes an author will emphasize something by putting a word first. In this case, that's exactly what he's doing. He puts the word love first. He loved, he loved, he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. This is very important, beloved. And I think the reason that John is wanting, us to, emph wanting to emphasize this the reason he's wanting us to understand this is because Jesus is about to do some things that don't seem very loving. He's about to say some things that will not feel very loving from the outside. In fact, people will accuse him of not being loving. And I think he wants us to know, John wants us to know, God wants us to know that everything Jesus is about to do, everything that's about to transpire, all the suffering everybody will be forced to endure is issuing from the love of Jesus for his own. That's the truth. Now before we press on in the story, I wanna pause here and say that after giving this a lot of thought, I don't think that John is trying to help, trying to make us think that Jesus had a special love for this family more so than for others. In, in some ways, when you're just reading the story at full speed, it can kind of come across like that. Like, of course, he has a, a love for everybody, but, but he really just clicked with this family. He loved this family, he was close to this family. I suppose that's possible. But I think that John is trying to highlight his affection for them so that again we'll understand what's motivating him. And I think when we step back and look at this story in the whole context of chapter 10 and chapter 11, we see that this is how Jesus feels toward all of his sheep. Jesus does not use people as pawns to further his purposes. He's not simply a charismatic leader who is leading a movement and doesn't really care how it affects the people around him. He loves his own, all of his own. Chapter 10, we see that he calls his sheep by what? By name, right? 
We see that he leads them by name. He saves them by name. He gives them eternal life and eternal security and eternal protection by name. He brings them into the pastures of God by name. He brings them into the pen of God by name. He leads them through all things by name. He will bring them home by name. He knows his own by name. Beloved, he cares for his sheep. He has affection for everybody who belongs to him. And so the truth is true for this family and it's true for all of us who are following Jesus. He loves us. And every single thing he allows to come into our lives is an exercise of his love. Oh, how important it is that we know this, beloved. I know you understand my words, but I'm asking you to receive it into your heart. Some things in life do not feel like love, but they are. God loves you. He cares about you. He knows you by name. He is working in your life. Trust Trust his affections for you, not just his commitment to you, but his affections for you. To keep emphasizing this, this whole theme of love that doesn't maybe look like love, look at the very next word in verse six. I don't know if you're not reading the ESV, I forgot to look this up in other translations, but in the ESV, the very next word is so, which means therefore, which means on the basis of Jesus' deep affection for this family, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that's not what we would expect John to write. That's not what we would expect from somebody who loves somebody or a group of people, is it? What would you think if you heard that I found out about someone's illness or I found out about someone's difficulty and I deliberately made a choice to just sit and at least it would seem like do nothing? Jesus was not doing nothing, but it surely would have seemed like that. We would have expected John to say when Jesus heard of the illness of his friend, he either sent out the word and healed him immediately, or we would have expected him to say he gathered the troops, he gathered supplies, and they headed out. He went to Bethany, he healed his friend, he ministered to the family. All things went well, all things went in the right track because Jesus loved this family. But that is not what John wrote. John wrote, that specifically because Jesus loved this family, he waited, he stayed, he let some things play out, and those things that played out were very hard, very hard. I wanna encourage you, especially if you know this story well, to just pretend like you don't know the story at all. Get inside of this story, feel what these people would have felt. From what we can tell in this story, Lazarus is not an old man, he's a young man. He should not be dying. And since we only hear of one brother and two sisters, perhaps he was the man of the household. And so much in that culture depended on the leading man. So much was on the line, beloved. This was very, very painful. And because Jesus loved them, he waited. Now at the end of those two days, the Lord said to his disciples in verse seven, let's go to Judea again. Notice that he doesn't say anything about Lazarus. I don't know if he was assuming they would understand that, but two days have passed. And remember, I think the disciples think that Jesus has said, listen, he's gonna be okay. So maybe they've stopped thinking about Lazarus. I don't know. All I know is he doesn't mention Lazarus in verse seven. He just said, let's go to Judea. And they hear him to say, let's go back into the place of danger. And so they speak up and they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now, just recently, only three months ago, trying to stone you. They're trying to kill you and you want to go there again? 
Now, probably they really did love Jesus. They probably were really concerned for him. From what we see in the other parts of the story, it doesn't look like they were directly after his disciples. We at least don't see any verses about that, but they were directly after Jesus. And it is not just possible, but probable that they had genuine affection for their master and they did not want him to come into harm. And they're thinking that we just barely escaped, not once, but several times. And you want to just go right back into the lion's den? But also, there's just no way. They weren't thinking of themselves at some level, right? If the Jews were going to stamp out this movement, they were not only going to stamp out the leader, but everyone who was key, very close to him. So maybe they would not kill people in mass, but surely those 12 men were in mortal danger. And surely they were thinking of themselves when they said, hey, you sure about this? Do we really want to go back there? Jesus answered, though, verses 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In Jesus' day, both the Romans and the Jews referred to daytime as a 12-hour period and nighttime as a 12-hour period. I actually took the time to look this up. In truth, the day fluctuates over there between 14 hours and 10 hours throughout the year. They knew that. They were not stupid about that. It was just a shorthand way of saying the day is 12 hours, the night is 12 hours. So as we think about that, the literal meaning of Jesus' parable is, is pretty self-evident. He's saying that when the sun is out, a person can see where they're going, they can see where they're stepping, and by and large, unless they make a mistake, they, they're not going to stumble. But remember that they didn't live in a modern society, so when the, the sun went down and the moon was not out especially, they didn't have all kinds of sophisticated lighting systems. They could not see. When I have spent time in India, you know, I felt that the darkness was very gripping in India because there's not just tons and tons of light out in the village areas. In the, in the city, there's still quite a bit of light, but out in the village areas, there's no light, and the darkness is very dark. Here in the state of Minnesota, one way, to, one way to feel this is just think about times you've been up north, been up in the woods or whatever. I was just thinking about earlier this morning when I was camping this summer, there was a night I had to get up and go use the restroom and it was just dark beyond dark and I could not see and I'm ha only half awake and I'm really disoriented. I literally did not know which direction I was walking in. And thank God by his grace I made my way to the, to the restroom. And I made my way back but I was stumbling. I was stumbling over tree roots and all kinds of things. When you walk in darkness, deep darkness, you can't see and so you stumble. So again, the literal meaning of what Jesus is saying is not that hard to understand, but, but what is he saying? Put yourself in the disciples' shoes, beloved. If you had just told Jesus, listen, are you sure? Do you really want to go right back into the heart of danger? Do you really want to put us right back into the heart of this difficulty? Would you have been satisfied by what he just said there? Would you have felt like he addressed your, your question? I have to confess that if I was there, I don't mean this as though I would be hard-hearted toward, toward him. I just... I'm so knuckle-headed, I don't think I would have understood him. I think I would have been confused, like, what are you talking about? Did the question I just asked have anything to do with your answer? I was something's, what are you talking about? What are you saying? But praise be to God, we're on the other side of these things, so we have time to reflect, we have time to pray and think about this. So I think I do understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the light of day is the light of the glory of God the Father. And while it is light, they have to work. While it is light, they have to obey. Jesus is saying that he walks in the light of the will and wisdom of his Father, and because that's true, he will never stumble. 
And I think he is even saying that if the darkness descends upon him, he still will not stumble because he has the light of God inside of him. Inside of him. The light of the world for Jesus was not the physical sun. It was the deep communion he had with his Father. Please hear what I'm saying. The light of life that belonged to Jesus was not physical light. It was his communion with his Father that allowed him to see in the way that he ought to actually see all things. And because this was true, his modus operandi was to only say what he heard the Father saying and to only do what he saw the Father doing. Therefore, he was determined to go back to Judea because he had just received marching orders from the Father. That's what he's saying. I am walking in the light of my Father, and therefore I will not stumble. I might suffer, but I will not stumble. I am walking in the light of my Lord and my God. And I know from fellowship with him that it is now time to return. This may seem a strange way to put it, but I would say it this way. Jesus walked by faith on this earth. He lived by faith. He listened to his Father. We're going to see at the end of chapter 12, he was utterly dependent upon the words of his Father for everything that he did. He lived by faith and not by physical sight. He trusted in and submitted to the commands of his Father, and therefore he would never stumble. Jesus was not afraid of any man or any circumstance because he feared the Lord, and he feared the Lord alone. I'm not saying that he never felt that feeling of anxiety that sometimes comes with fear. If you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't know how you can deny to him the feeling of fear at times, but deep inside of his heart, he was not afraid, beloved, because he feared the Lord. And you know, it's amazing. Isaiah actually prophesied this about him. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read to you from Isaiah 11. Therefore shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruits. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight, his passion, his joy shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Or from what we saw last week, he's gonna fulfill Psalm 82, because the Spirit of God is upon him. Beloved, Jesus was walking in the light of his Father's will. That's what he was saying. He was not making an arbitrary choice to go back to Judea. And in saying that, he's not only trying to teach his disciples about himself, but he's trying to teach them to walk in the way that he is walking. And this is very important for us because he's trying to do the same thing with us right here this morning. We're not just looking back at an ancient story that has nothing to do with our lives. This has everything to do with our lives, beloved. He's trying to teach us to walk by the lights of the will and wisdom of God. So, sometime after these things, we don't know how much time passed there, but in verse 11 it said that after these things, Jesus said to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples didn't get what he was saying. So basically their point of view was, well, Lord, that's good news. If he's sleeping, if he's resting, it means he's on the road to recovery. Things are gonna be fine with Lazarus. Read this to say, hey, Lord, let's not go back there. 
Lord, I think it'd be a great idea to just stay right here where things are safe and people are coming to faith in you. Let's not go into the heart of darkness. Let's not go back into the lion's den. But of course, Jesus didn't mean that Lazarus was resting. He meant that Lazarus had died. And so he told them plainly, look at verses 14 and 15, the end of 14. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. The last part of that sentence, beloved, is very important. So I wanna pause here, make sure we're following what Jesus is saying. Jesus knew that Lazarus had died and Please hear this. He knew that if he traveled back to Bethany as soon as he got the news, Lazarus would have died anyway. He knew that. If you'll peek down to verse 39, you'll see there that when Jesus actually arrived at Lazarus' tomb, he had already been dead for four days. Four days. I have told you that the journey from where Jesus was to where this family was was a two-day journey. You could do it in one day, but it would be an insane day. Most likely, it was a two-day journey. Jesus had also delayed for two days. That's a total of four days. Probably, Lazarus died just about the time that Jesus got the news that he was sick. He was already dead. The only way Jesus could have intervened was to heal him from a distance, but he chose not to do that. But do not think that Jesus delayed and therefore allowed Lazarus to die. Lazarus was already dead. Jesus delayed for this reason. In the Jewish culture of that time, this did not come from the Bible, but it was very popular in Jewish culture to think that a person's spirit hovered over their body for two days after they died. And so they believed that people could be resuscitated within two days of death. I think probably the reason this came to pass is because they probably thought some people were dead that actually were not dead and then they began to, to have consciousness again. They thought they were dead, but they weren't. That's probably where the myth came from, but whatever the origins, they thought that two days after death, the person still could be resuscitated. If Jesus had gone to Lazarus and brought him back from the dead within that two-day window, people would have said, this isn't a miracle. This is just resuscitation. Jesus waited an extra two days so that everybody in Lazarus's family, everybody in Lazarus's village, everybody who heard this story, would know beyond a shadow of doubt that Lazarus was in fact dead. He was not simply sleeping, he was dead. And this is why he said to the disciples in verse 15, for your sake, disciples, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. I'm glad that I did not go. I'm glad that I did not do what I'm about to do within the two-day period so that you may believe. Jesus rejoiced in his Father's will that it was not to intervene and cause Lazarus to remain alive, but that his father's will was actually to let Lazarus die so that he could exalt his glory and upbuild the faith of his disciples and others who looked on. Lazarus' death would soon become the means by which Jesus would make himself look awesome in the disciples' eyes and by which he would lead them to submit their lives to him. I am not saying... John is not saying that Jesus used Lazarus as a tool. I'm not saying that because it's not true. Remember verse three and verse five, Jesus loved these people, but I am saying that he used the tragedy of the death of a young man to glorify his name and build up the faith of his disciples. So I think that we can say that the heart of the setup for this story is something like this. Jesus rejoiced that Lazarus had died because he knew that through it, He would exalt his glory and build his disciples' faith. 
Let me say that again. Jesus rejoiced that Lazarus died, not in death itself, but because he knew that through that death he would exalt his glory and build his disciples' faith. And indeed, here we are 2,000 years later still talking about this story. Jesus saw the end from the beginning, and this is why he rejoiced. This is why he was so glad. This is why he was happy uh, on behalf of his disciples. And so with that, Jesus just said to them, it's time, let's go. And you'll see there in the very last verse there, verse 16, that one of his disciples, Thomas, which by the way, Thomas is his name in Aramaic, Didymus is his name in Greek, so there's the same, same word, it means the twin. He probably had a twin, but we don't know who the twin was. But he was one of the 12 apostles, and Thomas spoke up and said, let us go so that we may die with him. Now, I've always taken these words to be sarcastic. I've always taken Thomas to be saying, I do not want to go. If we go, we're gonna die, but what are we gonna do? We've been following this guy all this time. Let's just go, let's just go die, let's just go. He's not happy, he's resigned to follow Jesus, but he's not happy about what's happening. I've always heard his words like that. But I was surprised to see when I did all my research on this passage that I only found one scholar out of about 15 that I've been reading through the Gospel of John that took the passage that way. All the rest of them saw his words as sincere, as though he's saying to the rest of these guys, listen, this is hard, we might lose our lives, but let's follow Jesus till the end. Something like when Peter rose up and said, I will lay down my life for you. And I will admit it's still hard for me to hear it like that. I've been for 31 years, I've been hearing his words sarcastically, so I'm trying to see if I can turn my mind around. When I'm reading it at full speed, it sounds to me like a resignation that Thomas isn't so happy about. But either way, whether he's sincere or sarcastic, I wanna say that the function of his words is this. They are exposing the weakness of the disciples' faith. Not the absence of faith, they're willing to follow him, but there's a weakness in their faith. If he's being sarcastic, the weakness in their faith is obvious enough. But how is it that I see weakness if he's being sincere? How could I say that it's a weakness of faith if he's saying, well, let's just go that we might die? Faith is not a feeling, faith is not a force. Faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. Faith is not blind. People who talk about blind faith don't know much about faith. Faith is blind sometimes to circumstances, but it's not blind to the person who they are following. Faith looks to God, trusts in God, hopes in God, believes in God. The disciples, even though they were following Jesus, they had a completely wrong-headed vision of what his life was about, what his ministry was about. Later, they would not understand until after the resurrection even what his death was about. So Thomas was following Jesus on the basis of his fleshly vision of the identity of Jesus. That's where the weakness is. They were not seeing the purposes and promises and plans of God properly. They thought they could even die along with Christ. They did not understand that only he could die on behalf of all. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to criticize them, beloved. I'm just saying there's a weakness here. And in verse 16, Jesus, again, is deliberately exposing the weakness of their faith so that he can build their faith. Some intense things are about to come. And so he's got them thinking now about his glory, about suffering, about faith, and now let's go. Let's go into the heart of the lion's den. Please think about this with me. Jesus says in places like Matthew 24, 36, if you want to look there later, Matthew 24, 36, Jesus makes pretty clear that he did not have the fullness of knowledge about everything while he was a man on this earth. He makes that pretty clear. However, 
From many texts throughout the Gospels, we see that he knew a lot of details about his suffering, about his death, about his resurrection. He knew a lot of details. It's hard for me to imagine that he did not know that his disciples would not die along with him. He knew that they would be okay when they went back into the promised land. He knew that they would not suffer the same fate as him. In fact, he knew that they would scatter from him. They would suffer, if nothing else, because of cowardice. So, if he knew that, why didn't he comfort them? Why didn't he tell them, don't worry about it, guys? It's not going to be easy, what we're going to go through. It's going to be harder for me than it is for you, but at the end of the day, you're going to be just fine. Why did he not comfort them with this knowledge? Answer, because he wanted to teach them to live by faith. He wanted to show them how to walk in the light, even as he walked in his Father's light. He wanted them to know the fear of the Lord that fears the Lord and fears nothing else. As I said, true faith is not blind, but God will often keep from us the details of circumstances, not because he's being mean, but so that we will learn to trust him, so that we'll learn to trust his heart, we'll learn to trust his promises, we'll learn to trust his strength, and when God leads us in a way that frightens us to the depth of our bones, but he says, no, keep going, keep going, do not stop. We need to learn to trust him, and how else Well, we learn to trust God unless we're forced into situations where we have to trust God. You cannot learn faith by reading books about faith. You cannot learn faith about even doing a Bible study about faith. You can learn the contours of what faith is, but you only gain real faith through actual experience with God. Jesus has given them a gift, beloved, in withholding information from them. He is giving them a gift because he's about to build their faith. So with that, let me just summarize what I think the lesson of the setup of this story is. Jesus uses all things to exalt his glory and build our faith, the faith of those who are his own. This applies to his disciples, it applies to us as well. Now that may be a feel-good lesson if all things were always pleasant things, but the truth of the matter is in this life that all things are not always pleasant things. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna see that some of all these things are are very difficult, intense, painful, and disorienting things. But be that as it may, the truth remains in their lives and in ours. Jesus uses all things to exalt his glory and to build our faith. And I think the reason he would do that is this. Why would he go to such extents to build faith? Why would he use even bad things in themselves? Death is not a good thing. Why would he even use that? to build our faith, simply this. The faith and the faithfulness of God is the most valuable asset in heaven or on earth, except for God himself. Please take time to ponder what I just said. There's nothing more valuable in life than faith, nothing, nothing. Faith is trusting in the trustworthiness of God, which means at heart that faith is about our communion with God. What is more valuable than a human being's communion with God? Nothing, I would suggest. And then when you think about it practically, Paul promises us in Ephesians 6 that by faith, by trusting in the faithfulness of God, we have a shield about us that Paul says can extinguish every single one of our enemy's arrows. Nothing the enemy plans against us can ultimately succeed if we're living by faith in the faithfulness of God. This doesn't mean that we won't suffer, but it does mean this is the power of one who trusts in the great faithfulness of God. He himself is like a shield about us that protects us from everything except for his will. 
And so we can know that any suffering we have to endure is actually coming from his hand and that the intention of his heart is to lovingly build faith in us. And since love, since faith, I mean, is so radically centered on God, since it is so valuable, since it is so powerful as this, then, beloved, we need to understand that our Father will do anything he has to do to build faith in our lives. If we had a little bit more time, or if we lived in another country where people liked really long sermons, I would take us to James, where we could see that the devil is always targeting our faith in every temptation, in every trial, because he knows how valuable it is, and God also is targeting our faith in every temptation, in every trial. Always, faith is what's at stake, because there's nothing on this earth that's more valuable than trusting in the faithfulness of God. Jesus uses all things to exalt his glory and build our faith. And so let us surrender to his will and ways. Let us humble ourselves before him and allow our good shepherd to lead us in the way he wants us to go because he's for us. He is not against us, beloved. The path may not be easy. We may not always understand. He may not always tell us what he's up to. In fact, a lot of times he won't tell us what he's up to, but he is up to good things. And faith is learning to believe in that over emotions, over what we see with our eyes. Jesus is up to good things. There's nothing in our lives that is for nothing. Jesus uses all things to exalt his glory and to build our faith. So I wanna close by commending an exercise to you. This will only take a, a minute or two. If you don't have the time or the ability to write this down, we put these PowerPoints up online. Brett's out of town right now, so it might take till Monday or Tuesday, but eventually this PowerPoint will be up online, so if you, if you want to access this later, you can. Simple exercise to apply this to our own lives. Step one, I want to invite you to prayerfully think about and write down the main difficulties in your life. Now, uh, you might be the type that would be tempted to list out 20 to 30 things. Don't do that. I'm saying think big things. I'm saying pray and ask the Father to help you see what are the main things that are happening in your life. What are the main difficulties? What are the main disorienting things? What are the main sufferings in your life? Write down no more than three preferably one or two. What are the main things in your life that are really painful and difficult right now? Pray, ask your father to give you insight. He will, he will do that in his time and way. Step two, prayerfully then think about and write down, physically write down your answer to this question. How can Jesus glorify himself through these difficulties? I was talking about this with Kim the other night and she warned me to warn you and I'm gonna pass this on because she's right. We will be tempted to write down, Lord, here's how you can glorify yourself. Get me out of this. Often he will not do that. Sometimes he will, but often because he loves us, he will cause us to endure. He will cause us to persevere. He will cause us to keep believing when everything around us says stop believing. Just keep believing, keep pressing on, keep trusting, keep hoping. So with that in mind, assume that he's gonna cause you to persevere through something. How could Jesus glorify himself in your eyes and in the eyes of those around you, specifically through your difficulties? I was over at the Veeks house yesterday. They have a, a word of the year. The word is through for them. And Tracy was pointing out to me that in the midst of the word through is the word rough. And then in the midst of that is the word ugh. And I like that. There's an ugh in the roughness, but we're gonna get through, amen? We're gonna get through. How could Jesus glorify himself? Step number three, 
prayerfully think about and commit to paper how might Jesus use the exaltation of his glory through your circumstances to build your faith and to build the faith of those around you. In other words, what might God be up to in the midst of these difficulties in your life? And then finally, step number four is not always easy, but it's so good for us. Step number four, obey Ephesians 5, I think it's 19 or 20, where Paul says, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a real power, beloved, in thanksgiving, especially when we thank him on the basis of things he's just shown us about his glory and about our faith. Take time to give God thanks and discipline yourself every day to give thanks to God, to give thanks to God, to give thanks to God, primarily because of this. Jesus will use all things to exalt his glory and to build our faith. And so let's surrender ourselves now to his will and ways. And let me pray that he'll help us with that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of so many things that are revealed there. We thank you for the true light for life that is in John 11, 1 to 16. We've heard the flow of the story to this point, Lord. We've heard the main point. We've heard your heart. We've seen your hand at work. And surely, for most of us, we want to believe and we want to live by the truth of these things, but Father, it's hard in life at full speed, so I'm praying for supernatural help now. You never tell us that we have to follow you in our own power. Repeatedly, though, you tell us that we follow you by your power, so please give us that resurrection power of Christ to follow, to endure, to persevere, to trust, to hope, and we pray for the day when we will see with our eyes the exaltation of your glory and when we will feel deep in our hearts that our faith is strengthening, that we are more at peace, that we are relaxed because we're trusting in Jesus, we're resting in Jesus. Oh, Father, please come. Use your word by your spirit and do this great work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.